Hey, if you're new or visiting this morning and uh, you just happen to walk in, you're walking in on the end of a series. Uh, we've been doing this series when the blank hits the fan. And uh, we've inserted words into the blank. And so we've covered catastrophe, then loss, then betrayal, then, uh, I got to remember the order here, and then di- pain, and then disappointment. And we're wrapping the series up this morning with silence. And so if one of those sticks out to you, you go, oh, I would have liked to heard that one. Go to our website, nview.org, and you can go to the sermon section, the archives, and you can download those. And if one of those really catches your attention, uh, you can listen to it. So this morning, Sounds of Silence, Hello Darkness, My Old Friend. Boy, that song kicked off, and I was just popping with it because I know the words. And John, this morning I walked in, John was playing, and I was singing away, and we were having a great time. But it says, I've come to talk with you again because of a vision softly creeping left its seeds while I was sleeping. And the vision that was planted in my brain still remains within the sounds of silence. You know, that is great words that he penned. That's great words for the kingdom of God too. You know, uh, if you look up the history on the song, uh, which I did, it, uh, Simon wrote that after the assassination of John F. Kennedy, all right, or 35th president, uh, who was uh, murdered on November 2nd, 1963. And uh, he wanted to create a song that depicted the emotional turmoil that had spread across the country at that point. And people don't, it's lost the the shock of what happened during that time. Uh, This generation, 9-11 is the big buzz, right? But that uh, paled in comparison to what happened when Kennedy was murdered. And if you were alive at that time, you know what I'm talking about. It, It stopped everything. It was an incredible deal. And uh, so he wrote, the the song was written in February of 1964, and the track rocketed, that was the song that launched Simon and Garfunkel to uh, stardom. And in 1966, on New Year's Day, it was the number one uh, song in the nation. It was said that it took Paul Simon six months uh, to write the lyrics. He averaged one line per day. All right, so think about that. One line per day over six months. He was 21 years old at the time. And uh, most people thought it was written about the Vietnam War because it was written in that same uh, time frame and it seemed to be a powerful anti-war statement. But actually his theme in the song was man's inability to communicate with his fellow man. The lyrics, which are full of light and dark imagery, speak of people talking without speaking and people hearing without listening, illustrating people's tendency to be apathetic, towards each other. Communication is often only on a very superficial level. We've talked about that before. Hi, how are you? Fine, right? And it talks about symbolized by the neon God that they made. Uh, And in that world, no one dares to reach out to anyone else and disrupt the sound of silence. It was also a, a, a parallel. Another one said that it's a parallel to modern day society and the neon gods of the cities and man's experience where you can be among three million people and not know anybody the isolating effect of the modern culture that we uh, currently live in. And, uh, and that, that still rings true today. And he wrote that thing 50 years ago, right? It's an amazing song. It just pops. People instantly recognize it. And as we think about this, we're looking about this morning, uh, we're going to talk about when silence hits the fan. Have you ever hit a dry period? Ever hit a period where you don't hear from God? You're praying and going, why doesn't he talk to me? Why has he not 
responded back? How come it feels like I'm hitting a blank wall and all I get are the sounds of silence? Let's pray this morning. Father, one of the human complaints to you is you don't talk enough or clear enough. And yet sometimes, Lord, I think we speak out of both sides of our mouth because when you speak, we freak out. And so there's, there's a, a number of dynamics at play here. And yet when we come from the side of you being Father, there's a longing to hear your voice and know your voice, not as the thundering God of judgment or not as uh, the God who uh, comes after sin, but as our Father. And so as we look through this this morning, my prayer is that people would recognize footprints and fingerprints of your journey with them all through their life. They'd recognize places where uh, you have uh, talked with them and also places where you just looked and watched and your eyes set upon them even though you were silent. As we walk through this morning, I don't know what you'll light up or how you'll do it, but I ask that you would. And we pray this in your name. Amen. All right. So this song, I thought the song was a great introduction to uh, the topic this morning. And what I want to talk about is wrestling with silence. You know, we have that as a human experience. But the truth is the scriptures are riddled with this uh, kind of expression. Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Have you ever groaned? Right? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. This, is, this psalm is written by King David. And from a human perspective, he's describing what many of the ancients called the dark night of the soul. When it appears that all presence, all sense, all voice of God has disappeared. And you're left with some major questions. David himself was no stranger to this experience as he faced many tragedies and crises in his life. There were times that God spoke very clearly to him and gave him incredible uh, promises and direction. There were other times that God seemed to disappear. And this psalm catches the intensity of that experience. Not only that, but David was actually speaking prophetically. And so when he wrote this, uh, it became that this very psalm and the experience of his projected forward 1,500 years into the future to the Lord Jesus himself, who utters these very words on the cross, an ultimate experience in the silence of God. And so we ask the question this morning, when God is silent, Does that mean God's not here? First, let's consider some things that uh, color the perspective. I could kind of come around the bush a little bit and and feather it out a little bit. History is laced and scripture is laced with long periods of silence. See if you recognize some of these, all right? Some periods of silence that are found in the Bible. First of all, there's the 400 years in Egypt. Remember that they had come because of the famine and it says that they were in the land for 400 years and then there arose a Pharaoh that knew not Joseph. Then you have God's promise to Abraham for a son. Usually when we pray, we want an answer yesterday. Right? Three minutes will tolerate. Five, you're pushing it. Ten, you're dragging and stalling. Right? We have no patience in this. Can you imagine how long it said that Abraham had to wait 75 years? 
God promised, and 75 years later, 75 years, not months, not weeks, years later, God fulfilled that promise. A lot of silence in there. God's promise to Joseph that he would reign, right? Started out, went told his brothers, told his dad, that went over well. Some big gaps in there, right? With Joseph, what he experienced. God's promise to David that the kingdom would be his. That's weird when God promises the kingdom be yours and several times you almost lose your life because a spear is being chucked at you and you're being chased like a rabbit through the wilderness, right? How real does that promise seem at that moment? The 400 years of silence from Malachi to Matthew, right? End of the Old Testament, the beginning of the New, we call that the 400 years of silence. Now, What I want to suggest this morning is that in all these so-called stretches of silence, God was actively at work in some very powerful, very powerful ways. For example, in Egypt, he was moving Jacob and his family. He was building up a nation and he was also raising up Moses. A few significant things going on there. With Abraham, he was establishing a people and getting ready to provide a son, not only his son Isaac, but a son, Jesus, who would be the savior of the world. With Joseph, he was powerfully at work to create a ruler, though Joseph would have had very little, very little hint of that over a 20-year stretch. He spent it in a pit, he spent it in, as a slave in a house, and he spent it in a jail. It didn't look like any of it was ever going to come true. Those dreams seemed like poppycock to him during that time. David was promised and then had to wait uh, 14 years to get the kingdom. And there were a bunch of trials to boot on that. I once had a friend who was going through a stretch, and it it was a jobless stretch, and he was frustrated to death. And he finally sat in the truck, and we were talking. He says, I'm done with this. I'm done with God. It's over. This is ridiculous. I said, "What what are you upset about? It's been two and a half years. I said, well... Joseph was in jail 17 and David had to wait 14 for the kingdom. You want to really push that thing? He goes, oh, you tick me off. (laughs) We have such a short time frame, right, in terms of wrestling with that kind of stuff. History is full of um, these kind of promises. And here's the point. When God is silent, it does not mean that he's not there. Look at uh, Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. And it says, Selah, ponder that. I think it's funny to ponder it because we sing these kind of songs, right? I will not be shaken, right? And the truth is that's so funny because we're shaking at everything. We're like quaking aspens in the wind. Right? And the idea here is that it's thinking on God's presence. History is full of tumultuous events. And if we are reading the book right, these kind of events, the waters roaring and foaming, the mountains falling into the heart of the sea, are going to increase, not decrease, as we go along in both numbers and intensity. God, this verse declares, is a very present help in times of trouble. So therefore, in the worst of times means when he's most present. That's the point I'm trying to get across. 
Does it feel that way though? No, because what we say, if you were here, these bad times wouldn't happen. Right? There's, the, there's a line there. Right? God declares in a very present, is a very present all times of trouble, whether we can hear him speaking or not. And the silence yells out one big question. In the midst of all these circumstances, when everything's roaring and foaming, uh, if you can pause for just a second, what you'll hear is this question, do you trust me? There's a trust lesson that you have to learn as a Christian that in spite of all the circumstances and everything you see going around you, you hear the question, do you trust me? Let's look at that trust lesson for a second. This is found in Job. It says, though he slay me, I will hope in him, yet I will argue my ways to his face, which he did. This will be my salvation that the godless shall not come before him. Uh, In King James Version, it says what? Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. The idea here is, even if he were to kill me, I will trust him. Now, we should be that way, right? Because we say we've given our lives to Christ. We've laid down our life for the kingdom. Our life is his life. So, really, that shouldn't be um, too hard of a thought for us to wrestle with. And yet, when adverse circumstances happen, we start distrusting very quickly and we start yelling out for god where are you where are you you know this famous quote is taken from the book of job it's actually taken from job himself it's a quote from job and it reveals his ultimate confidence that god has his best interest in mind even if he were to die which he was very close to at that point more tellingly job is an extended in is in i guess it's a sorry Job is in an extended period of silence. If you think about this whole place where this is happening, if you've read the book, a bunch of things happen to Job. A bunch of things go wrong. He loses his children. He loses his property. He loses his wealth. And he loses his status. How many of you would do well with those four? And in the midst of it, a whole group of well-intentioned friends who are trying to help him. And what they're saying is, why don't you just admit you've sinned? Because, Job, things like this don't happen to people who don't sin. Obviously, you've sinned, so just cough it up and you'll probably hear from God again. Nobody goes through this kind of thing, this kind of suffering, if they're right with God. They had a paradigm for that. This judgment is a result of your sins. Confess and it will get better. Even Job's wife piled in and said, why don't you just curse God and die? Very encouraging, right? The setting, as I said, was Job had been stripped. These long, drawn-out arguments are actually what? They are filling the space of something. What are they filling? They're filling the space of silence. There's... They're not hearing anything. So then they all argue and debate among themselves. Do you ever do that? How many times have you debated something, brothers, sisters, right, in the Lord, and gone on and on and then say, you know, maybe we ought to have prayed about that. Oh, yeah. Hmm. They're filling the gap with, with noise. From the human perspective, what? God is absent. God is silent. 
and has abandoned Job, who scripture says is a righteous man. Matter of fact, not just a righteous man. It says he was the most righteous man that lived on the face of the earth at that time. So we're talking about a pretty cool dude here, right? Who's right in the eyes of God and he's gone through this. So uh, from a human perspective, this is abysmal and silent and abandoned. But from a spiritual perspective, we see there's some incredibly dynamic things going on during this whole scene. In the spiritual realm, what do we know? Satan and God have a conversation. God says, have you noticed my servant Job? And Job goes, or Satan says, yeah, yeah, well, whatever. Sure, you blessed him. You gave him everything he wants. He's living like a king. He eats the fatted calf. Every time he prays, you answer him. He's got all seat of honor, whatever. But that's because he's doing well. You just touch him. Just touch him and he'll curse you to his face. And God says, you know, I don't think so. I know Job. So God says, I'll tell you what, I'll give you permission to touch him. And so Satan is allowed to touch him with some of the things we saw. And Job doesn't curse God. Now, he complains bitterly. And he does not curse God. Right? How do we react when we're touched that way? Is it your normal inclination to bless Right? Yeah. <laughs> Honest. The rest of them pretended they didn't hear the question. Thank you, Brooke. All right. Okay. No, we scream like stuck pigs. You better answer me now. Where are you? I thought you were my father. You thought you cared. Oh, my gosh. If we had a tape recorder of it, we would just. Can you imagine all your whining if we played it on stage and just played it? Right? It would be embarrassing. What I'm saying is, but from a spiritual perspective, was it silent? No, there was so much dynamic things going on. All right, and so here's the key lesson. The key lesson is what we see isn't always the most important reality. Harris illustrated that on the screen really well. What we see isn't always the most important reality. Some of the most silent times in history are some of the most dynamic and important times in history. You say, how? Prove it. All right, I will. How about the tomb of Jesus? Was there anybody at the tomb of Jesus? No, nada, nobody, zip. One of the most silent moments in the history of the universe. And yet, Scripture records, it was one of the most powerful three days ever recorded in the history of the world. And to this day, we do not know all of what went on while Jesus was in the tomb. And I want to suggest to you that when we get to heaven and God rolls that out, we are going to be so astounded at what went on in the spiritual realm, we will sit back in awe and applaud God and be absolutely stunned at what took place in what we would call nothing going on. We've got to quit evaluating it from the human perspective. Our world's got it wrong, people. The idea is we create everything. We do everything. We make everything happen. And if it's silent, then it's not good. And so as a society, we're on an insane attempt to run 24-7, 365, because what we're saying is we're God. And we can no longer stop to hear God. And so there's a huge um, trust lesson. And that brings in the sovereignty lesson. I'm stealing your title there, Scott. Hope you don't mind. 
Because one of the issues that we wrestle with is sovereignty. God in Isaiah 29 says this, you turn things around. Shall the potter be considered as equal to the clay? That what is made would say to its maker, he did not make me? Or that what is formed to him say to him who formed it, he has no understanding? We do that in America Day, right? God, you are answerable to us. We're not answerable to you. You're answerable to us. We're Americans. We are the greatest nation on earth. We're the coolest people in the world. We're really cool and funky and hip and all this stuff. And we're relevant. We're not ancient relic like you. And the fact of the matter is we think you're doing an absolutely lousy, crappy job with running the world. And by the way, it's not just the world saying that. Who else is saying that? The Christians. You ever told God you think he's doing a crappy job? Well, not like that, Pastor Steve, because I'm spiritual. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, I got it. Fine. Whatever. Right? And God says, you've got this thing flipped around. Are you crazy? This is, in essence, what God told Job as well. If you go on to the book, he goes, all right, you want to hear from me? Then let's hear from me. By the way, then you get to that point, you can't back up. Right? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. All right, smart britches, you tell me how this was done. He says, I, will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God and can you thunder with a voice like this? In essence, what he did, and then he proceeds to declare everything he's created. Right? This lays out, go in the chapter, spends two chapters, I did this and I did that and I, and how was that built and how did this and how does that happen? And, and he says, okay, smarty pants, tell me how I did that. You're so good, you're so sharp, you got it all put together. How did I do that? And Job goes, busted, right? Well, that's the Mitchell's translation. You'd have to look what it actually says in there, but that's the spirit of it. I want to suggest something to you. Those who have gone through seasons of silence have great things to teach those of us who haven't. Ponder that for a second. Silence is not bad. As a matter of fact, it can be incredibly profound. What are some of the benefits of silence? I uh, want to give you an illustration that comes from a sermon, James Emery White. It's an autobiographical sermon on the silence of God. I found this, and I want to give him credit. You can look it up. But he tells this story. I'll read it to you. When I was 19 years old and in college, I was invited to a weekend party at a nearby university. My friend Phil was going and he encouraged me to come along and I wanted to go and I tried to make it happen, but I couldn't get away. You know how that works? It's, ah, it doesn't pan out. He said four, pe- four people left without me on Friday afternoon. Two days later, as they returned to campus, a car from the opposite flow of traffic crossed the dividing line and flew headfirst into their car. All four were killed instantly. He said, I first heard the news late Sunday night. I left my dorm, walked over to a nearby athletic complex, hopped a locked fence and sat in an empty football stadium under a moonlit sky. I grieved for my friend. I thought of the brevity of life and actually thought of how close I had come to being killed if I had been able to go and ride along with them. 
He says, and I remember crying out to God to help me sort it all out, to make sense of it all, to talk to me, to say something, anything. Silence. And he says, yet in truth, it was the deepest conversation we ever had. God was moving within me, communing and communicating with me on levels that I had never opened to Him before. That night was the first of many such conversations, some even more traumatic. Within four months, I became a Christian. Perhaps it's not silence we're encountering when we seek God, but rather a pregnant pause, a prompting to engage in personal reflection so that the deepest answers, the most profound of responses, can be given and received. And what he's saying, I learned something. When everything went still, I suddenly had to confront some things I hadn't confronted before. And I heard things I never heard before. I, I found this illustration in an article that parallels that story uh, in a magazine called Fast Company. I've never heard of that magazine. But it's talking about chess and it's talking about uh, methods of grandmasters who teach chess. And uh, it talks about this chess master, much sat after uh, mentor, Bruce Pandolfini. That's quite an Italian name, huh? And uh, it discusses how he works with his students. Listen to what he says. My lessons consist of a lot of silence. I listen to other teachers and they're always talking. He says, I let my students think. If I do ask a question and I don't get the right answer, I'll rephrase the question and then wait. I never give the answer. Most of us really don't appreciate the power of silence, he says. Some of the most effective communication between student and teacher, between master players, takes place during silent periods. And I want to say this morning, if a master chess player says that about his teaching methods, could it be that this is how God mentors us? Is God's apparent silence the method of a master teacher? A genius, in fact? When I go through seasons where God answers do not come quickly, or I cannot hear Him speaking on the surface of things, but I realize that the way God interacts with my prayer draws me into a deeper trust, a deeper dependence, and a deeper obedience. The answers that I find transcend what I initially sought to find. What usually pops up when you learn to stop and be silent? Let me give you a couple things. Number one, here's some benefits of silence. Oh, there we go. Usually when you get quiet, you start to see your sin. It says here, I get introduced to my sin that I need to confront. Right? It starts to become apparent. You ever sit down, get quiet, and start remembering conversations where you sinned against somebody else? And you remember the words and the tones? You wouldn't remember that if you just kept moving. He says, I recognize patterns of behavior I need to break. You review your performance or you're quiet and suddenly you go, 
you know what? Other people wouldn't even think that's bad, but my motive's wrong. The way I'm doing that, i got to change it. It's not right. I may be fooling a lot of other people, but I'm not fooling God. And by the way, church, this is not about us impressing each other or fooling each other. We can't fool God, right? It's about the audience of one that we're responding to. Thirdly, I gain insights into who I am that I didn't have before. A lot of times when we sit down, when we get most rattled is when God says, do you know I love you? Oh, that can't be true. We zip right by that. Most of us have a very difficult time believing God loves us. We have an even harder time talking about believing that God likes me. When it comes to disappointment, one of the things I left out, my buddy Tom Sewell pointed out, one of the greatest disappointments in life is when I'm disappointed with myself. And my opinion of myself outweighs God's opinion of me. I discover a depth of relationship with God that I've never experienced before when I go quiet. Maybe... That is why when we get alone with God, to be in the Word and pray, we call it a quiet time. But quiet times themselves can be postured. We can look very quiet on the outside, but very stirred up on the inside. Have you ever tried to have a quiet time and you settle down to read, but inside you're just... Right? It's just popping. So then you stop, recalibrate, and then it goes... Right? And, and you're just, you can't, you're jiggling all over the place. Uh, it's learning to quiet our souls. Most of us won't quiet our souls because we're afraid of what he'll say to us. We're afraid you're going to see that big old finger pointed, sinner, you, like on a hook, right? And yet we also miss a great depth of relationship with God. Now, talking about this too, there's a frustration level. I'm not naive. I've been around a long time. I've watched a lot of people. And part of us as Americans is if we hit a wall, we find a way to go around, over, under, or through it. It's not going to stop us. And if I can't get an answer one way, then by God, I'll get an answer another way. And Scripture warns us that there are incredibly inappropriate Methods to try and hear from God and get Him to speak to us. And there are some uh, very illegitimate ways to seek God's voice. This is the story of King Saul. Basic story, Philistines are coming with an enormous army. Saul is scared to death. And then it says this in 1 Samuel. When Saul inquired of the Lord, he actually went and prayed. He was trying to seek the Lord. When he inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him probably because he wouldn't repent, had a big thing to do with it, either by dreams or by Urim or by the prophets. So he had sought out all the legitimate ways. Then Saul said to his servant, Seek for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And and the servant said to him, Behold, there is a woman who is a medium at Endor. The woman was a witch involved in witchcraft and worked with conjuring up spirits. And so Saul said, I'm going to go to her. 
Well, this is incredibly inappropriate because Saul has driven all the mediums and witches from the land. God talked in no uncertain terms of how wrong this was. Saul knew it was wrong. He knew it was sin, that God had flat out forbidden uh, these kind of practices. But here's the point. He was desperate. We do stupid things when we're desperate. Right? And he was desperate. All the legitimate ways had failed, so he sought out an illegitimate way to hear from God. And so he turned to that which he knew was forsaking the Lord so that he could hear from the Lord. That sound like us? Right? How did he know it was wrong? You know how he knew it was wrong? Just like Adam and Eve when they sinned, what did they do? They clothed themselves, right? What did Saul do? He disguised himself. Why did he disguise himself? Because he knew when he showed up, if the lady who was the medium saw him, she would go, Ah, King Saul, you're going to kill me. And she'd flee. So he had to disguise himself so she wouldn't know who he was. That's always how sin works, right? What are some of the illegitimate ways of seeking God's voice? I'll just pop them up here. There's dozens more. These are... uh, very, very uh, not so good things that we should not be dabbling in in any way, uh, shape, or form as believers. If you have time to study it, the severest kind of warnings in Scripture are against these kinds of practices up there. Uh, just so you're aware, mediums are people who conjure spirits. Necromancers are people who bring up uh, the spirit of the dead. So people lose a loved one, they want to talk to them, they promise to bring up. Spirit guides, uh, that's very, I think we know about that in our culture. Ouija boards and crystals, I think we know those things. A believer in Jesus Christ should have absolutely nothing to do with these practices or people. And I would say this morning, if you're dabbling with that, please, by the mercies of God, get out of it. If you've got a Ouija board, get rid of it. You've got crystals, get rid of them. If you have dabbled in these kind of things like seances and stuff, repent of that get away from it. there are spirits that will come to you but they are not the holy spirit they should be forsaken and shunned at all costs none of these methods or sources have anything to do with the holy spirit or god talking to us they are false fabrications meant to lure us into a trap to how serious are they to dabble with them in them costs all his life And that should be a sufficient warning for us. All right, let's uh, move on. So there is a place where we need to learn to be silent. We need to learn to stop. That's hard to do in a 24-7, 365 culture. We used to have the blue laws, right? Ah, see the heads nodding. If you're under 50, blue what? I don't get it. What's blue laws? But they were laws that on Sunday businesses couldn't operate and you actually stopped. All kinds of programming on TV didn't happen. You had three stations, they shut them down at six at night. Wow, really? But it was the idea that there was a place for silence, a place for rest, a place to collect. You know, we can't see the stars anymore because of all our light pollution. We can't hear God's voice anymore because of all the sound pollution. Think about it. And so to learn to be silent, I found some great quotes here. Uh, Woody Allen, God is silent. Now man, now only if man would shut up. 
That's a very, very stupid man saying a very brilliant thing. (laughs) Will Rogers said, never miss a good chance to shut up. If you know Will Rogers' humor, it's pretty funny. Heim Heim Poltek says something uh, that I think is profound. He says, I have begun to realize that you can listen to silence and learn from it. He says, it has a quality and dimension all its own. And maybe to hear God, we have to learn how to be silent. Uh, Ecclesiastes would say it this way. Here's how scripture would say it. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. Sacrifice of fools, flapping lips. For they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. In other words, that won't get you where you need to go. Maybe to hear God, we have to learn to stop talking, to stop our distracted mind and thoughts. Quiet time doesn't just refer to words, but also to the inner state of our soul. Have I or am I able to quiet down and just connect on God's terms rather than on my terms? There's a new um, phrase out there now. It sounds like they discovered something brand new. It's called listening prayer. That's an old term that's just being remembered. God is always here, but that does not mean we always hear Him. Sometimes in the silence, a most startling fact emerges. Some of you have experienced the great one of the universe is silently and thoughtfully staring right into your eyes. He's just watching you and watching how you're going to react. And when you realize that, in that silent stare, there's gentleness, grace, and love. Then our souls sing out, as Romans 8 says, Abba, Father. My mentor, Jan Henninger, taught this lesson. Don't forget in the darkness what you learned in the light. That could be modified today for what we're talking about to say this. Don't forget in the silence what you've heard him speak to you in the past. You know, you've heard him speak to you in the past. Matter of fact, Go back to the last thing you know the Lord really told you. Can you remember what it is? Stop for a second. Just ponder. What's the last thing you could go back to to say, I really know that was something the Lord told me? Grab that. Let's pray together. Father, we're pondering your conversation with us and just I asked to go back to the last thing people know that you really told them. That's going to be a lot of different stuff for a lot of us. And yet it's very profound. It pauses us, stops us, and this morning makes us think back to how and when have you talked to me? What have you laid out in your word that stood out to me? What have I been asked to do? What have I said no to? What have I said yes to?